talking a little bit tonight. Last week we talked about basic doctrinal stuff we should believe. Now here, here's the reality. You know, we're, we're First Baptist Church. We're a Baptist Church. And, and you know, sometimes people think we don't look like a Baptist Church. And probably if we didn't have the name Baptist attached to some player, many folks wouldn't even know we were that way. But we are. And, you know, we're Southern Baptist Church. There's nothing wrong with that. I, someone, I've said many times, if, if people said, if you weren't Southern Baptist, you weren't a Baptist, what would you be? I said, I'd just be embarrassed to even admit that, you know. That's all I know. Doesn't mean we're right. Doesn't mean we're perfect. But what we're going to talk about tonight are some of the things that are distinctive. When I say distinctive, I don't mean that necessarily it's only us, but that kind of define us, shape us, how you know you're Baptist. There's, I, the last, I don't know what the count is now. The last time I checked, there's 121 different types of Baptists, of which Southern Baptist is the largest by all the others combined you know, in America. We're the largest non-Catholic denomination in America. And, um, but basically, they're all in many ways the same. And there's just certain things that you look at. That's pretty characteristic of a Baptist. But what will really help you with this, I think, especially tonight, and I'm going I'm to talk about this more at the end, is if you understand this a little bit, it's easier to understand the way I think and the way I make decisions. Sometimes you may say, why does he make that decision? Why did he guy do that? Why does he sometimes say that? You know, why, does he, why, does, why is sometimes is this happening? If you understand that I come from the standpoint of being, you know, 60 years old and, and really uh, 61 in terms of just, you know, from conception, I've been a Baptist, all that part. You may understand that. And, uh, and all my ministry is that way. And that's how I understand and I interpret and look at life. It's not just as a Christian. That's the primary way I get it. But as a, a Baptist. And, uh, and so to understand some of those things are important. Most of the things I'm going to share with you, we share with other uh, Christians, and they're, they're true of all of us, but they become important uh, to us as you bring them all together just a little bit. And so the first thing I'm going to share with you that you really need to understand, this comes out of the Reformation. And what I'm going to share with you on, on this particular distinctive is that it is true really of all non-Catholic Christians that are legit, that are orthodox. I'm not talking about cults and all that in account. And it's not a slam against Catholicism, but you have to understand that when Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and those guys broke away uh, from the Catholic Church. Luther broke away. Calvin was really always away. And, and even guys before them, one of the, there were some certain issues that mattered. And so the first thing that really matters has to do with the authority of Scripture. We believe, first and foremost, that our sole authority in this life is the Bible above all else. Now, you know, when Luther broke away, it was because, in part, the Catholic Church said the authority is not just the Bible, but the Pope, and whatever the Pope would speak or say carried equal weight or authority. Now, if you come from a, a Catholic background, please understand, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying these are historical facts. And that was a huge part. It's still true today. When the Pope speaks in certain capacities, not all capacities, it carries the full weight of authority. So in some traditions, not just Catholic, in other traditions, people who speak can be as authoritative as the Bible. And we say Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and and others as well say it's not. Now, many of the things I'm going to share with you, by the way, aren't just unique to Baptists, but if you come from a non-denominational background that's not charismatic, almost all of this is the same for them. 
the fact is, most non-denominational churches in America have there as their founding pastor a guy who was once Baptist. <laughs> Baptist, if you count all the churches from guys who once Baptist and you add them to the Southern Baptist, it's a bunch of us. But so a lot of this will be true of non-denominational churches as well, and, and things of that nature. So in 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 Second Timothy three, here's what Timothy says in verse sixteen: All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. He's talking about the Old Testament. They don't have a New Testament yet. He's not talking about the New Testament. But scripture to him is the Old Testament. But what is true of the new, of the old, we would say is true of the new. Paul, Peter, also writes to that in 2 Peter chapter, um, chapter 1, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Scripture, well, that's your interpretation. This is mine. Well, I'm here to tell you, our interpretation doesn't matter. There's only one interpretation of Scripture that ever matters. It's God's. It's the Holy Spirit that he gave to the guy or gal, in some cases in the Old Testament, who wrote it. Our task is to understand what they wrote and try to get it to meaning. But not only that, everything we do should be in an effort to appeal to Scripture. So whenever I deal with an issue, whenever I deal with a controversy, whenever someone comes up and we have a discussion and may disagree, what I want to know is where in Scripture do you get that from? What is your authority from a scriptural standpoint? And I always go there. And I'm always going to go there. And in any issue, I'm going to try to understand what does the scripture say to us. Sometimes they don't speak specifically. I mean, I, you know, you can't find a verse that says specifically that, but you understand it. Where does that come from? And sometimes scripture is rather silent on something, and you, you try to figure it out as best you can, and sometimes you may just walk away and say, you know, I'm not going to be too definitive on that because it really doesn't say. So that's always the place where I come from. It's always a place where we come from. If you and I and we're in church life or discussing something, what does the scripture say? Or how can we understand that? And so, you know, when someone comes up sometimes and they have a, a, a belief or a doctrine and, and, and they share that with me, and I may say, well, I don't think that's true. I mean, that's just what you're saying is not accurate and, and, uh, because there's no place in the scriptures to defend that. What you're saying isn't scripturally correct. And then sometimes they get upset, sometimes they get mad. So I had a, you know, I had a debate with a guy. He's not here, I don't think. About King James Version of the Bible. It's fine version of the Bible, I got no point. But he says that's the only version. And I'm just like, that's not scripturally accurate. And we had this discussion. I'm just saying, the Bible doesn't give you permission to come to that conclusion. In which case, he basically said I was an idiot. Which, that's true, but not because of that. <laughs> At the end of the day, it is the revelation of God that is our authority, not a version of it, not a view of it. We deal with this oftentimes in, in a Baptist life about can women be senior pastors or be ordained or be your deacons. And we, we get to that. And uh, I don't ever really deal with that uh, much because I see no reason to. It doesn't accomplish anything. I always, here's what I tell people when they come up to that. I said, how is that going to help me achieve uh, what God wants me to do? If you can't help me achieve, that ain't going to help me. I ain't going to go fight a battle I don't have to fight. And that is a battle I don't want to ever fight. But I say, what does the scripture say? Here's, and, and, and most Baptists will say, well, the scriptures say it has to be a man. And I was like, well, it doesn't say that. It's just they always are. 
doesn't mean it's not. In fact, there are two places. You know, there's one place for sure in the New Testament about a woman deacon that, that says a woman was a diaconess, a deaconess, and that's Phoebe in Romans 16. We ignore that because it says servant, and we say, well, she was just a servant. Well, it's the same thing that's used in Timothy 3 about when you have deacons. It's the same word in the feminine form. Same thing. The word deacon is only used technically three times, twice to refer to an office, if you don't count that, in Philippians and in Timothy. In Philippians, it says, greet the deacons. And then in in Timothy, it gives you the qualifications of a deacon. And then the only other time it could possibly be used in that form is about Phoebe. So here's what I say. What does the scripture say? And and oftentimes, we can't come to an agreement. And so here's what I do. I say, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So I just walk away. And I don't deal with the subject because I tend to be a coward at that point. The other thing, so the authority of Scripture is what matters. There's no place, so if a Baptist church tells me they have women deacons, I don't care. Because there's nothing in the Scriptures to prohibit that, as I understand it. But if I don't want to have them, that's okay too. Because there's nothing in the Scriptures that demands it. So you, the, the Scripture becomes the authority. And if you don't have a clear picture from Scripture, and some say it is a clear picture, some say it's not, I say it's not, well, then... At that point, give me a biblical reason to do it. Give me some reason for that to occur. I'm saying is this. Everything comes from the standpoint of Scripture. The second major distinctive we have, it's not even unique to us, is that Baptists believe in something called the priesthood of the believer. That also is in reaction to Catholicism. Those Baptists, we don't put it that way. Baptists, we don't ever like to admit anything we do is ever a reaction to anything else. But Luther really coined the phrase priest of the believer. And as Baptists, we don't like to give Luther credit for anything or Calvin because we want to think we came up with everything, but we didn't. In the Old Testament, a priest is an intermediary between man and God, man and woman and God. In the Catholic Church, it's the same way. You don't ask God for forgiveness, you go to the priest. In Catholicism, it's sacramental and sacerdotal. Sacramental means grace is given through the sacraments, seven of them. Sacerdotal means that you have to have a ordained priest or a deacon give the sacraments for the grace to be effective. So you have to have the priest. When Luther came around, the problem that he was dealing with had to do with priests. And Luther read the scriptures and came to the conclusion that all of us are priests before God. Paul, but Peter writes, we are a royal priesthood. We are our own intermediary to God. No human, in other words, stands between us and God. We believe every person can come to God and pray and ask for getting us to be saved. All non-Catholics believe that. We also believe in something called the soul competency of the believer. That's a fancy term simply to say this. Every person is capable and responsible to come to faith in Christ. No one can do that for you. Now, some of our Protestant friends get a little iffy when they uh, sprinkle their little babies into the covenant community. And because their family members are part of the covenant community, they become part of it. And though technically it doesn't save them, it becomes a little sketchy. If you baptize infants and you believe it leads to salvation, you have violated one of the tenets of soul competency. They never got to make the choice. So we believe that to be a priest is also mean you're, you're competent enough to reject Christ or to receive Christ as Savior. So that becomes critical for the things that we believe. That's why we insist that a person to be saved has to make that decision themselves. We're very careful about children. Uh, 
children can be easily persuaded. I can give making I can lead any child to Christ. Not legitimately. I can lead any I can any child to Christ if I ask the right questions. We want to determine whether or not the child has truly trusted Christ as their Savior. Because they're little. Sometimes that it's iffy. Sometimes we encourage parents to wait a little bit longer. We'll talk another time. Because of our belief in the priesthood of the believer and the soul competency, we don't, we don't let the parent make that decision. They don't tell me. I don't really deal with it anymore. The other guys deal with it all the time. But if I'm doing it, they don't get to tell me my child's ready. I'm like, well, let's find out for ourselves and make sure our child is ready. The competency of someone to come to Christ, those are hugely important to us. With that in mind, then we come to probably the one thing as much as any that begins to distinguish Baptist churches and evangelical churches and non-denominational churches, and that is the autonomy of the local church. Every church is autonomous. We answer to nobody. I mean, nobody is an organization or nobody is a bad grammar. We don't answer to anyone. And so our church is an autonomous church. We determine our own future. I'm talking not, not in a spiritual sense, but just in a, in a pragmatic sense. We, you, you decide who you call this pastor. No one tells you who to call. No one interferes with the way that we do things. So we're autonomous in how we make decisions. This is hugely important for the way we function. This property belongs to us. It doesn't belong to anyone else. If we decided that we wanted to become Presbyterian, we'd have to give our property rights over to the Presbyterian, uh, whatever it's called, it was called, Senate or whatever. We would have to do that. Um, if we were Methodist, Methodist would determine who the pastor is every few years. Unless, of course, that Methodist church gives a ton of money to their particular association or group, then they have a little more freedom. See, money, don't care who you are, money always gets you a little bit more freedom in life. But as Baptists, we don't, we don't halt with that. Even as Southern Baptists, no one tells us what to do. We voluntarily belong to three organizations in Southern Baptist life. Locally, we belong to the Rio Grande Baptist Association. Statewide, we belong to the Baptist Convention of New Mexico. And nationally, we belong to the Southern Baptist Convention. But none of them tell us how to operate or function. We can leave one and belong to the other two. We can belong to the local association and not belong to a state or national convention. It's not common, but it happens. There are churches in El Paso who belong to the El Paso Baptist Association, but not to the state or national convention. We can belong to the national convention and not belong to the state or, or the local. You can get kicked out of the national convention and still belong to state or local. And by the way, it's hard to get kicked out. We, we, we're voluntarily a part of it. You may ask, how do you join a Southern Baptist convention or, or whatever? You give money, that's how. When you start giving money, they'll, they'll start making you one of theirs. You think I'm kidding, I'm not. The local association is a little different, but, they, this pat, but, but really, we don't interfere with how churches function. This past uh, month, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, removed three churches from being Southern Baptist. They can still be part of their state and local area, but not Southern Baptist. The primary reason we've ever removed somebody is that if they, uh, if they either have, if they ordain someone as a homosexual, or if they, do, or if they agree to homosexual marriages, then we intend to disassociate ourselves with them. Um, this year was kind of strange because they kicked out two churches that called as a pastor uh, someone who had a, a, a record of, of sexual misconduct. They, in other words, they, and they were, one of them was actually on an offender's list. And uh, I, I would have opposed to that. I don't think that was our place to do that. Not that I think it's okay that they be pastor, but that's the church's decision. The church 
has evidently investigated their research and, and, realized, and figured this was okay. And I felt the National Convention overstepped its bounds. It was determining for a church what was and wasn't proper to call a pastor. See, the National Convention doesn't get to tell you how to call a pastor. And that's what they were doing. Now, I know there's more to it, and I get it. That made me and many others very, very uncomfortable that they did that. Because right or wrong, what that church did, they were infringing on the autonomy of that church to decide its future. Um, that, so we hold the autonomy of the local church extremely important. Because of that, and in addition to that, you have to realize that we believe in what we call a regenerate church membership. In other words, to be a part of a church, that you need to be born again. You need to be someone who has given your life to Christ, the soul competency, and been baptized by immersion. Um, and so it's important because churches... You know, some of you have joined our church from other churches in, in my time. And, we, and if you came from another Baptist church, we come by letter. Everybody, what does that mean? And it just means we write that other church and say, you've joined, send us a letter. I, uh, the letter is a card. In the old days, in the old, old days, what they would do is they would check off how active you were and whether you gave. That was on the letter. And we get that. And I'm like, okay. Glad they joined. Or they might say, that person causes trouble. Some of you are probably glad we don't do that anymore, right? Glad that don't happen. Some of you. We don't really do that. We just say, you can have them now. <laughs> but a lot of Baptist churches don't even ask for a letter anymore. We, we, we got people, remember, two or three churches. We're, but when I do that, I'm dependent upon them that wherever they join from, like if they were baptized in that church, it was or legitimate baptism, or the church before them, or the church before them. It's kind of silly. We rely on that. But if you come from a Southern Baptist church, I'm never going to, or any Baptist church, not just Southern, but if you come from a Baptist church, or an evangelical church, or a non-denom church, or, or a Bible church, I probably, we probably won't ask you, have you had believers baptism? Now, you come from a Presbyterian church, or Methodist church, or Church of Christ will ask you. And sometimes you say yes. Sometimes they say no. And when they say no, we have to put them under and bring them back out because they haven't had believer's baptism because we believe in two ordinances, baptism by immersion for a believer and Lord's Supper, and both are symbolic. By the way, a lot of Protestant denominations don't believe they're symbolic. They believe they have some attachment of grace to them, and we don't. Or, or, or it's, a spiritual, not, it's a spiritual aspect. There's a spiritual quality. We don't even think that. Uh, I'm here to tell you, Baptists don't think there's anything spiritual about baptism and the Lord's Supper in and of themselves. The spiritual comes from your personal relationship with Christ. So we don't believe uh, in some, like the Re- some Reformed churches believe there's a spiritual connection to your uh, baptism into your Lord's Supper or communion. We say it's all symbolic. That's just it's how we function and operate. That's how we look at things. So that becomes extremely important. So, we require a regenerate church membership to be baptized. Now, in the old days, they might require you to be baptized by a Southern Baptist church. That don't seem right, but we did some do that. If you go to the Deep South, they still of them still do that. Uh, some of them said any Baptist church. Uh, I grew up, most of them said by a, a Southern Baptist church or like, or like mind, a like faith and practice. That's what I would say. So if you came from a Bible church, we probably, if you came from a non-denom that was you know, started by a Southern Baptist pastor, we'd keep you. Uh, some of the other stuff might be shaky. Nowadays, we, to be honest, we're just like, have you been baptized? Yeah, I've been immersed. Yeah, we're good. We're good to go. We don't make a big deal beyond that. Here. 
So we probably have people here whose baptism was a little shaky, but we're not going to worry about it. It's between them and God. It doesn't save you. If it does, I've always said, baptism doesn't save you. Why do we worry about it? That made sense to me. Does baptism save you? No. Then why are we splitting hairs over that? Then the other thing that I would say that, that strongly, and I'm going to bring all this together for a few minutes about how we make decisions, is we believe in the separation of church and state. That at this con- and by the way, the First Amendment in the Constitution, Madison was the reason we have that. And the reason Madison was for it is because Madison was being run against for the Constitutional Convention in Virginia by a Baptist pastor named John Leland. John Leland was running because he was tired of Baptists in Virginia being persecuted because they weren't a part of uh, having to pay taxes because they weren't a part of the Anglican Church. So he was going to run against Madison, had a large number of people, and he and uh, Mr. Madison cut a deal, and Madison said, I will support freedom of religion if you will support me. He supported him. Madison went kept his word. First Amendment's in there, in large part because Baptists. And uh, we've always believed strongly that church and state should be separated. It was because of a Baptist group in Danbury, Connecticut in 1803 who wrote to Thomas Jefferson that Jefferson wrote a document that said there was a wall of separation between church and state. Separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. I don't care what people say. It's not in there. It's not a constitutional right. It's nowhere. It's not a right anywhere. It's just a common practice that we have. It was for the protection of the church and not the protection of the state. Now, let me just take these and kind of tell you why all this is important and how you function and operate. And I'll give you some examples of how that works in in our life as a left church and how I make decisions. So last year when we had the COVID thing and we decided not to meet. And the reason we decided not to meet for nine weeks wasn't because the governor said to. We had to. Because I believe in separation of church and state. The governor doesn't tell me when to worship ever on any circumstances. No how, no way. But because we didn't know what was going on, and in the interest of some degree of unity within the community, we decided for a few weeks to step aside. I hated it. It was hard. It was harsh for us to do that because it was against everything I believe in as a Christian who believes in the authority of Scripture, which says, do not forsake together the assembly with one another. But we did it with the understanding. And I eventually said, we're coming back. And, and, and until the governor said churches should come back, I had said, we're coming back June 1st. Come heck or high water, we're coming back. But then the governor opened up a little bit earlier and we did. But when she did that, she had some restrictions. And one of the restrictions she had is you couldn't sing or chant. And uh, we're a big chanting church. I don't know if you know that. Or not. <laughs> well, immediately I said, we're not doing that because it was nothing political. It has nothing to do with politics. The government doesn't tell us how to worship. Because our sole authority in worship is God in the scriptures. He tells us how to worship. And the other things we did, and so we put together, you know, they, they, you know so here's the, here's the thinking process of so much. When we did all this and we, you know, put in policies about masks and social distancing and all that, when people came to worship here, we didn't require them to do anything. Here's why. I, I, I used to comment, we treat people like adults. That's what I've always said. Well, we treat people like adults. You want to wear a mask, it's fine. If you don't, that's fine. You're an adult. But that was all because of my belief in the priesthood of the believer. Because when you came here to worship God, how you did that was between you and God. It wasn't my place. Even with the mask, it wasn't my place. It wasn't a mountain. You know. Obviously, if you, know, if you come and really allows, you know, if you come half naked, we're not going to allow that. But that's a moral issue in itself. But basically, our, our whole point was, if, if, you're, you know, if you wanted to sit next to friends to worship, that is your decision. You are a priest before God. It is not, I don't have the authority to make that decision for you. And that's the underlying reason for almost everything we did. 
Just about every decision that I made was because of my understanding as a Baptist of God's word. It guides everything. Scripture guides everything. Now, sometimes we did things for appearance sake a little bit because in the end, it was better for our witness because, you know, sometimes for the sake of witness and Paul talks about, don't, you, know, you know, sometimes don't eat meat offered to idols for the sake of the weak. Sometimes I looked at things like, okay, we need to help people through this and we'll do this and we made decisions. But always when I prayed and in the privacy of my life, I saw scripture. That was my guide. Holy Spirit, tell me what the scriptures mean so I can properly apply this. And I did it through the lens of being a Baptist because that's just who I am. And that's how we do things. With that in mind, you see a lot of things happen. You see churches discuss. I, I remember was a young pastor. The big battle was who is the spiritual authority in the church? Is it the pastor or is it you know, the deacons? And the guarantee is not the deacons. <laughs> but is it some other group? And, you know, I always thought that was a crazy battle. Because the spiritual authority is always Christ. When we start fighting over who's the authority, we have gone off the deep end, man. We're all servants. That's all we do. And one of the things that I thought was crazy is that as a pastor, I'm really no different than you. I'm not your priest. I'm one of you. You've just called me to serve this way. All of us serve. I just serve this way. And you have given me responsibility that I take seriously. That doesn't make me your authority. That just makes me the person who you hold accountable for decisions. That's how we do things because we are, as Baptists, congregational in how we do things. And I'll probably next week talk more about church governance and all that stuff. But what I want you to understand is that's who we are. That's how we decide. You are every bit is competent to come to scriptures and understand what it says as I do. Technically and theoretically, you're every bit as competent to preach as I am. The difference is I'm gifted that way and you're probably not gifted that way. And so I do that because my gifts allow that. Because at the end of the day, there are things you do as a follower of Jesus, far better than I do. Some of you are far more sympathetic. You're so much better at praying. I mean, people say, you know, I'm a prayer, I don't know what a prayer warrior is. It seems kind of counterintuitive to be a prayer warrior, but, you know, a prayer servant at the highest degree. Preacher, would you pray for me? And I would say, yeah, but there are people who do that better than I do. I'm probably not the first person you want to come to to pray on your behalf. People are better. Hospital visits, oh my goodness. Probably all of you are better than that than I am. You're probably better at going to a hospital and offering comfort and compassion and sympathy. I mean, I'm like, if I visited any of you in the hospital, raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, that's pretty helpful to you. I'm like, I'm the master of the five-minute visit, man. You got like five minutes of my time. And and then I got to get parking validated and go. I'm horrible. You are so much better at that than I am. Teaching children. You don't want me to teach your kids. You know how gruff I am with kids? I I remember when I was a youth minister, honestly, there were things I did as a youth minister I could not do today. I would get fired. I said things to a young guy one time. I can't even repeat it in here. I think you fired me because I did it 38 years ago. I I was hard. I was good, but I I just not. No. You were better at almost all of that. 
We're all called by God. So no, I'm not the authority. You're not the authority. And our Baptist understanding dictates that to us. We serve one another. We love one another. We pray for one another. We yield to one another. Just that sometimes you have to yield to me a little bit more. (laughs) Because you pay me for that. It's the truth. You pay me to make those things. So that's who we are. So when we see churches, and, I, and I've been, I grew up in a church that split, and I've, and I've pastored two churches that split before I got there. Just before I got there, not after I got there. And in every time, every time, it's because selfish ambition and who gets to be in charge got in the way. It's because they lost sight of the authority of Scripture. And they lost sight of the competency of every person to come before God and to respect that competency. And they battled and fought over things that didn't matter every time. And so part of who we are is to understand that's not how we function in our world. So these are the things that kind of distinguish us. And, and, you know, probably next week or so I'll talk about things like missions. I'll talk about Southern Baptist life. And I'll talk about how we, you know, governance and all that other stuff. But these were the things that make us unique. It's... Our appeal to the authority of Scripture. It is our understanding we're all priests before God and competent in our salvation. It's that the local church is autonomous. And I could spend an hour telling you the battles I've had with denominational people over the autonomy of the church, especially in Laredo. I think I spent half my time in Laredo battling the state convention of Texas over autonomy issues all the time. Um, it, it's, it's the fact that we have... A, a regenerate church membership and we do baptism and the Lord's Supper as ordinances and it's the fact that we believe that church and state is separated and if you'll understand that you can almost always understand the reason I make many of the decisions I make and the reason I take certain courses of action and the reason I sometimes don't take other courses of action it's because of those things so I got a few minutes if you want to ask some questions you may not think this is the most interesting subject but it's important that you have a grounds for this to understand this and every church can be a little bit different. you have questions or thoughts that you want to share or ask, I'll answer. Okay. It's good to know that you don't have any. So, you're through. We're gone. Go.